Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. Today, we have master horror writer Katrina Ward joining us to talk about her two very dark and deceptive novels, Raw Blood and Little Eve. Hello, Katrina. Hi, hi. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your books, please? Okay, yes. So I... Um, I grew up all over the world in I was born in America and then I grew up in um, uh, Kenya, Morocco, Madagascar, uh, Yemen and then the States as well. And then I came back to the UK for university and I started to write while uh, ghostwriting for a human rights foundation, which sort of sparked off and a need to write for myself, really. You know, writing for other people sort of opened a door to that. So I went and um, I did the creative writing master's at the University of East Anglia, which was great. And while I was there uh, and for a few years, <laughs> for a few years afterwards, I wrote my first novel, Raw Blood, which um, is a multi-generational ghost story set on Dartmoor, um, which won the British Fantasy Award for Best Horror Novel. And then I, I, I wrote my second one, which is Little Eve, which just came out uh, almost exactly a month ago. Fantastic. Um, now, I say this as a fellow female horror writer. Do you <laughs> think readers have a stereotypical image of a horror writer? I mean, has ever, anyone ever expressed surprise that you write deep, dark and twisted stories? Well, I don't think anyone who knows me has, but I mean, <laughs> I think I think that there is there's definitely an idea of what a, a horror writer is, and I suppose what that leads the question onto is, you know, there's an idea of what horror is, because I uh, horror is a very broad church, isn't it? But I think perhaps the stereotypical kind of horror that people gravitate towards when they that the, the image that it conjures up is a sort of it's quite gothic, perhaps a bit steampunk, maybe quite more violent, more slasher. Certainly when people photograph me for like for, for for something, they often say that I don't look horror enough, which I, I don't know what that means. I don't know what they want me to look like. But suppose the idea being that I should look more nasty and dangerous. So <laughs> but I, I don't actually think that's what horror is. I think horror is something you find in all good writing and actually all good writing contains some horror. Um, I think it. I think it's a it's a it's a word that describes a, a whole host, a whole host of things, and not perhaps just that sort of that sort of obvious thing that that, that occurs to most people. This is a really good time to actually bring in the question, um, you know, about crime and mystery, uh, because both of your novels have this this central mystery kind of at their heart, um, and this the the narrative, the way it kind of drives towards the big reveal at the end, is quite similar to the way that a crime novel is structured. Um, to do, you, I mean, did you ever feel like uh, writing cr- a crime book instead of a horror book, or or do you think there's um you know a natural overlap between these two genres? I think Little Eve is is a bit of a detective story. I mean. It's not entirely one. It's not so procedural. It's got that. So it's got you know. It's got a crime. And it's got a detective, and it's got and it's got a, a mystery and a solution. I suppose I I can't ever resist. I can't ever resist the ineffable and the supernatural. I just can't. I've never quite managed to sit down and write a gritty realist novel about you know the underbelly of life in a in a city. That's it's just not where where my heart lives so all any detective uh, or crime novel is always sort of fused with it with um with a more wide-ranging kind of 
sublime aspect of you know and lots of lots of different lots of different ideas and um and supernatural stuff uh hedging in there as well crime has the most perfect structure because it provides you with the illusion which you just absolutely don't get in real life that when you have a problem there can be an answer and someone can be held responsible and then they can be held accountable it's a wonderful comforting thing which actually i think you get the same level of comfort with from ghost stories don't you because you, there's a sort of there's a logic to them that is quite comforting and that you've got someone who is wronged and there is an explanation for something that's things that terrify us in life don't have explanations generally and they don't have neat solutions but somehow there's a congruency in the ghost story and and a logic to it that that is very i i find very kind of nice and comforting although perhaps not everyone would agree well it's interesting you should mention that because i interviewed john connolly a um, couple of years back and i remember him talking about crime novels and horror and things um and he talks about obviously with a crime novel you have order and then you have the chaos of the crime and then the whole point of the story is restoring order from the chaos and i think that's an analogy that again like you say works very well with horror i mean with comforting horror that you mentioned you have the order at the beginning then you have the chaos of whatever the monster is and then you have the order of restoring at the end but the option you have i suppose with um horror that you don't necessarily have with crime with you know the perpetrator being punished is in horror you could have the the last scene where you kind of wonder is the is the monster actually dead i mean the perfect example i always think is pet cemetery by stephen king um and in the at the very end where he just goes hello you know and greets his wife it's like well what what is his wife and you don't know i know that in the the film they made it very obvious and i think that was a bit of a shame because that re-established um the chaos back after the order that he you know put back in but I think in the book it's it is open ended and you can take from that what you want with horror, which I think with crime you can't necessarily do. It's like you've got to have the perpetrator, they've got to um be taken in for justice and, and the world has to be restored to the way it was. And I remember watching um Poirot, I think, when I was about a teenager and saying to my mum, But but she killed all those people and he just let her get on a train and he, she's like, Oh, but you know, Poirot loved her. I went That's not the point. <laughs> it has to be there has to be justice in a crime novel. Well, there's some kinds of there are some so many things I want to talk about. What you just said, um, there's some some kinds of uh, crime crime novels which actually shift the focus so that you you're viewing things through the lens of the perpetrator. Like the Ripley novels, for instance, are an excellent example of that. Ripley is your antihero and your protagonist. He is the criminal, and yet you are you you are you are invited and in, indeed kind of forced to be complicit and sympathetic with him it's a like such a clever like highsmith-esque shift of of the expected norms i mean i was thinking just to go back to your point about horror having the the power of uh of uncertainty and um doubt rather than rather than that neat resolution that's exactly it and it's so (laughs) it's so interesting how you know if you particularly if you're writing let's take ghosts for an example for as an example if you're writing ghosts you can't have a world where ghosts exist because that's not very frightening because um, then it's just Barry the ghost and you can't have a ghost a world where ghosts um, definitely don't exist because then where does the horror come from or well, nothing's going to happen there's going to be no ghosts so the only place where it where the horror occurs is in might it's the lo- it's that liminal space between certainties and it is a sort of you know to be a bit technical it is um, a result 
of the, its heritage of Protestant skepticism meeting a Catholic tradition of miracles and witnessing. It's a um, the, you require in order to create the uncanny, you can't have a Catholic world which permits miracles because miracles then are, are, in, are fitted into your belief system. There is a ghost in the Bible, <laughs> several in fact. So it doesn't quite work. But when you ca- when you get to this sort of uh, almost like Scottish and puritanical scepticism, you get the uncanny because you get doubt, you get rational doubt, and that's along with all probably you know accompanying all the great. Um, advances in science and medicine which came at that time as well so it's doubt is the place which is so terrifying which everybody all the great masters know is like when you see the monster it's too late it's not scary you you know you're you're fucked basically the the film is over but when the monster's in the shadows in the might and maybe if you don't even know if there is a monster that's where the power resides anyway yeah no so yeah i'm sorry as you can see you've started me on all cylinders (laughs) Well, I mean, one thing we could we could talk about in relation to crime um, is when you when you're in the process of developing these tangled and interwoven mysteries, um, what comes to you first? Is it the plot or the characters? And I know that Agatha Christie, when she started her novels, had no idea where it was going or who had done it. And I know that John Connolly tends to to write something similar. Um, But how do you write it when you've got mystery and particularly at the end of each of your books, um, you've got. A twist, almost. Yeah, I mean, you have to write. To be honest, I I I'm, I very much agree. Like, I think if you don't start with a character, you run the risk of it being a bit programmatic or formulaic. I, some people can do it. I I can't. I, I'm not a great minute planner. It kills it for me. If I know exactly what's going to happen at every stage, it's just I I just can't do it. So it is it is characters, and actually, what you do is. You see where they want to go, and then at the end of the draft, you go back and, to be honest, you kind of write the mystery in the edit. You don't, uh, you you write the, you know, any twists or any revelations or any misdirects. You put that, you put that in later. The first thing is, hopefully, this um, emotional authenticity and interesting people and you know voices speaking, speaking to you from, from the void. That's that's the first place where it starts for me. And, you know, it's I'm sure there are ways one could cut it down. <laughs> like It took me six years to write Raw Blood. So many voices, so much time. And maybe if I was more efficient, I could have, you know, I, I don't know, I could have planned it out and it would have, would have taken me less time. But I don't know. It's just it is a bit like. It is a bit like channeling, you know, you do you do listen and they do they do they do speak. They do they do come and take on a life of their own, the characters. In relation to Raw Blood, which I've just finished, and I'm going to fangirl about it because I loved it so much. And I thought it was incredibly clever. Oh, good. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I thought when you talked about it taking that long to write, I'm kind of not surprised because the um, the level of detail that goes into every narrative separate because because each it, it, as you said it's kind of split into like these three different narratives. Um, mm. So I'm quite interested into how you went about kind of tackling those. Did you did you just stick to one narrative at a time, or did you find that while writing one kind of set of character story, it, it naturally interwove with another set of characters i mean it was a combination of everything that novel was such a it was such a co- a spider web to write it was you know and quite often you'd found that you know one when you're in the middle of one narrative you're like it just doesn't make this doesn't make any sense unless i have this other narrative and then it requires you to go off and write half of that and then come back and then sometimes 
Actually, I mean, there are, <laughs> there are loads of narratives that didn't make it in because there were just too many. But it's it was, you know, it was incredible. It was incredibly co- technically complex, which actually as a first novel, I, I don't know what I thought I was doing. I, I mean, what, why? Why did I choose to do that? But But I did. And what I wanted to do also was I was really keen to write at a classic, an actual, not a sort of 20th century, 21st century misprision of a gothic novel. I wanted to write an actual gothic novel, which if you've read the, you know, any gothic novels, you'll know are a, a complete mess of fragmented narratives and, and you know, tales within tales and nest, nested stories within stories and unreliable narrators. And I didn't really want to compromise for, let's say, you know, the modern commercial, <laughs> the modern commercial market, which is my funeral, really. But it is, I, I just, I love, I love the the sprawling, complete grandiosity of the gothic novel. It doesn't, it just, it just doesn't give a shit about you. It just goes on these, on this immense journey that spans, t- you know, centuries and countries and these huge metaphysical concerns and these strange narrators. And so that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to create. And then, as you say, within each each narrative, you have to do a huge amount of research, and each one has to be perfect because I wanted it to be not only perfect historically, but each narrative is actually written exactly in the textual and idiomatic style of its period. So it's another challenge there. So the nineteenth-century doctors' um, part, section is is written in a sort of heavy. Uh, James sort of prose and, and lots of heavy Dickensian kind of run on sentences and the, and the World War One sections are very, like, very choppy and modernist and the um, Regency section is written like Jane Austen and there isn't a single word in any of those sections that wouldn't have been used at that time and I mean Jesus Christ I don't <laughs> <laughs> ever got through it but it was was such a fever with me you know I had it it had to be perfect I was just infused with this this passion to to tell all these stories in this particular way and then once you once I had all of them I fitted them together like a jigsaw and some didn't fit and it took ages to figure out what the through lines were and also writing the very very end the very last scene I I think there were lots of reasons I didn't want to finish writing the novel. I didn't want to to do what I had to do with the ending, which Lucy will know as you've read it. Um, and I also perhaps, you know, I'd spent so long with the book that it seemed very frightening to, to leave it. So it, I think I, I think I wrote the final scene like, two days before I sent it to my editor whereas and you know for a book that's been in in the in in the works for six years that's quite that's that's quite late to leave it um but it just it I don't know it I'd lived in it for so long and it somehow yeah it's different with the second one because you you know you you have to you have to do what 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 you instinctively did in letting everything find its proper channel you have to do that uh but on deadline so it's, it's a slightly different you know process but yeah, no, Raw Blood was a, Raw Blood was a great mosaic of, <laughs> of stuff. Um, I st- I'm still surprised that I managed to actually do it. But yeah, I was I, impressed that in Little Eve, um, you also had that sort of level of detail. I mean, the one that I picked up on um, was Mrs. Devere, um, which is just kind of thrown in there. And it's one of several different strands that you have going at the same time. And then suddenly yeah. it all comes in at the end. And then you have the bit at the beginning where... Um, they read out the letter and what happens with Christopher Black at the trial and what doesn't actually happen. It's just, 
again, it's not quite, I see what you mean about obviously with raw blood just being, you know, I can almost imagine your room like a um, a crime scene with all yeah. these like strings. Like, <laughs> like, like a serial, you know, when they have like in, in yeah. the horror films and the, you walk into the serial killer's den and there are like pictures and scrawled things in blood and candles and effigies burning. It was like very much like that. My, well, my, the inside of my brain was. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you still have that in Little Eve, just not quite to the extent. And I think, I mean, like Lucy, I really love raw blood, but I found that Little Eve was much more compact it was much more linear it was easier to follow and i must admit um we'll come on to this a little bit later but i i thought you were double bluffing something um and i i was incorrect but um but there we go (laughs) yeah sorry we will we'll not have any spoilers here i know what you mean i know what you mean and actually that thing that you meet that i think we're both talking about is never meant to be a reveal do you know what i mean it's meant to be like something that you're you're gradually certain of and then it's confirmed yes yes because there are there, the thing is what you also learn about writing mysteries is you can't have you can't have everything saved up as a reveal until the, the end you just can't you have to let some things like you have to let some things go and be and be um and be like certainties in the book but um yeah no i mean i do you know i think I, who knows i think i'm a better writer now and i think i think eve is you know i'm <sighs> I'm very proud of it. I also like I wrote it also at like, quite a difficult time in my life. And I think it's not an incredibly chirpy book, but it's very felt. And I I went I went very deep for it. You know, like I went deep as a person to to find to find it. Um, and yeah, it's it, again, it's it's because it's only been out a month. I still sort of look at it and I can't quite believe it's outside me now. <laughs> a bit like a bit like my sister when she had her baby. She's like, I can't believe he's there and now he's out here. It's exactly like that. You're like, oh, hello, little horrible little evil baby. <laughs> You're here on the table beside me. So I mean, I mentioned double bluff there, um, and. After reading Raw Blood, I went in and knowing what the ending was, I went into Little Eve almost expecting you to trick me from the outset. Right. Um, Because both your novels uh, do rely on misdirection and inference. So I kind of have to ask, um, now that you've obviously written two books with the the plot lines that they have, as a a master of the double bluff, do you hope that the readers will be led astray and they'll be be expecting to be tricked so they'll go off in a hundred different directions? Or are you... You know, are you quite careful to provide just enough clues to, you know, work it out gradually? I know that when I've obviously I've ghostwritten as well, just like you, but I, I go through a few mystery novels and I always mm. plotted it. It's like I've laid all my scenes out in a line on the floor, each little bit written out. And I was careful to make sure that all the revelations were staged at equal point three so that you didn't have like a big dump. But also there was enough. And, you know, and then yeah. you had to make sure that everybody was everybody. In, who was reading it and also the characters were going along the same lines i mean how how did you go about with that with obviously being so misdirected well i mean i think i think you're right like as in you first of all you have to play fair so you have to i think the the ideal is to make it something where when people realize what it is it seems suddenly although they had never thought of it before like the only possible logical logical conclusion so it should be as if you're subconsciously giving them subliminal cues all the way through and then they're ready to accept it. I don't think it's effective to, to sort of suddenly turn the novel on a dime and, and do something which people haven't been led into at all. But it's whether they realise they're being led, isn't it? I know what you mean also about like spacing out revelations because, look, I mean, 
there's no rules for anything. But you, you, in, why, why waste your carefully crafted, you know, twist, so to speak, by by bunging it in with a whole bunch of other twists, or or for letting the, you know, or letting the reader go too long and getting complacent. You sort of, it's supposed to be. I, I think people read people read books to like to live vicariously, to feel alive, and to to get a bit of a thrill. Like that's why you read certainly mystery novels and and books like that is because they excite you and they surprise you and they make you feel sort of agile and and um, and excited about the world. Um, and if possible, terrified. That's also one of my objectives. But um, yeah, I I know, I know what you mean. I do I do think I have a sort of slight resistance to the current vogue for like the big twist do you know what i mean i it just seems like it seems like everything has to now have a huge high concept twist at the end i mean i'm I'm being generalized i'm generalizing but and it's done very very well by some people but i also think that there are lots and lots of different ways of telling stories i don't think i don't think that's the only one and i wonder if we've become super over-reliant on it um you know or just i don't know the, maybe the publishing industry is demanding it at the moment you know with lots with with a few high profile extremely well done examples and everybody's come jumping on the bandwagon i don't i don't know but i think surprises come in all sorts of forms like it doesn't have to be a reveal but if you have just have a character do something unexpected that suddenly shows a different hue of their personality. I just love little moments like that. I think, you know, the, the literary and reading surprises come in all, all shapes and forms. Sorry, um, did, I, did, did that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> it did, don't worry. Well, actually, as we just touched on this um slightly before um in the in the, the question about kind of research because you mentioned that with raw blood you've got um multiple historical settings um and i really found that actually well, all of them were brought to life quite spectacularly um but especially the kind of 19th century um you know charles's perspective and this uh, you must have done an awful lot of research into kind of 19th century um medicine which is yeah. quite a specific a kind of area um, and the way that you brought it to life is very, very realistic. Um, but of course, you know, the natural tendency for writers, if they, they get into research, is to try and cram all of that stuff that they found out into the book. And then it, the book becomes too heavy. Um, so how did you juggle? It's a quite it's a delicate balance between trying to bring a world to life authentically and overwhelming the reader in detail. It's so true, isn't it? And you can always tell when people have, have really sweated blood on their research because they are, as you say, just levering it all in. They just can't bear for it not to go in the in the book because they worked so hard to get it. But it, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff which got cut. I have, you know, there was a lot of stuff in the final, you know, second third draft. You're just like you just look at it with a tear in your eye and you just think, no, I don't need you. I don't need you. I love you, but I don't need you. So. Um, yeah, there, there was a lot of stuff that got cut. But what I love, what I love about that particular period is that it's just, it's so mad. It's, it's just on that cusp between medicine being almost like a sort of, um, spiritual or, you know, like humanist or religious discipline. Um, and, and it being proper, you know, on the cusp of it being, you know, all the great advances of the late 19th and early 20th century and when science started to, started to really, really, um, you know, steam ahead. So it's this sort of people would just didn't know anything, but they were just just about to. And you still like you have your years, a couple of years away from penicillin. But you also there's this idea that you can eradicate cholera in 
in Cheapside by constructing a giant fan to blow the air around and somehow that will you know that would that will solve the problem so <laughs> these two these two worlds meet and and i just love it because it's it's, the, it's this nexus of two sort of two sort it's the end of one age and the, and the beginning of another and the nexus of these two sort of approaches to medicine and oh, i mean medicine is horrible isn't it isn't it cruel it's it there's nothing that that, that we benefit from today that has hasn't been uh, one hard earned by great cruelty um mm. it is the, it, it was very harrowing actually this all that scenes with the rabbits oh, i know i don't like myself sometimes but there we go it's you know i mean i think about also think about for instance you know that um that man that marion sims who's that the father of modern gynecology do you know about this does he he solved the, the problem of the of the vaginal fistula which was a you know big problem in childbirth and there are statues to him all over all over the united states and in fact you know outside lots of college hospitals and stuff um he solved the problem by operating without anesthesia on four slave women um for about many many multiple times um uh, and that's that's how he that's how we that's how we solved the problem and his methods are still used today so that's how we get that's how we gained that through this dreadful, absolutely reprehensible, ghastly, almost unthinkable human travesty, it's just and it's it's difficult. Like there was a wonderful exhibition at the at, uh, at UCL, which was about the history of it was actually it was about animals used in medicine, and it was incredibly moving. There was this board of mouse pelts, and when you when you came closer, you saw that they were all lots of different breeds and everyone was a slightly different color and you know what mouse fur is like it's, it's adorable it's very soft and very beautiful and um, but what these mice were where they were every every breed of mouse that's been bred by humans purely for the purposes of experimentation and um, there are many many kinds and we never see them because they don't exist or live outside laboratories and they just you know quietly die die live and die to uh, serve us i'm making myself quite sad now but this is you know these are the things we don't like to think about um which is you know we're standing on the shoulder of of uh, inevitably just by the nature of things of of, cru- of of cruel and 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 inhuman acts you know and i wanted to bring that to raw blood because it's it's all about cruel and in, uh, one particular cruel and inhuman act which um which precipitates the entire narrative you know Absolutely. And I think it's something that tends to get overlooked. And I know that um, the, in the Holocaust, there were some terrible, terrible things done to um, people yeah. in concentration camps. Um, and then after the war, they went, well, we've got all this really useful information obtained by torture. What do we do with it? Ethically? What do you, yeah. yeah, we shouldn't take this. But on the other hand, and I think some deals were cut for some very horrible scientists to... Um, to kind of get off lightly if they provided this incredibly useful information and you're right we we use it all every day but what a terrible way to come by it and you know i don't think it's something that should be ignored in a weird way you don't need to make up anything scary when you've got shit like that in your history that you can put into a book to scare the bejesus out of people so that's exactly i mean that's sort of what i mean about horror being in, in everything you know it's you don't have to look that far to uncover horror. But then, I mean, what I would also say is you don't have to look that far to find, even amidst the horror, these unbelievable notes of grace and, and hope. 
and and human connection and kindness and love and in raw blood and in, in in eve and raw blood actually what you know they're both about what happens when the people are put under almost unbearable strain like st- mentally and physically um things that you you shouldn't be able to survive but in each in each case i think that you know the characters find they find a way of living and a way of loving and a way of a way a way of um at moments of sort of peace and 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 transcendence so i think that's actually that's kind of the, that's the common that's the common thread between the two i, I would say is sort of like unbel- you know so not not only survival but kind of um moments of light amidst 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 aura we're talking obviously about your characters in particular, which led me on to one particular feature. Now, I know that children are very strongly featured as point of view characters in both your novels. And you only need to look at books like The Girl with All the Gifts or Stephen yeah. King's It to realise that they're used a lot in horror. Yeah. So why do you think it is? Is it because children are more curious? Is it because they're less doubting, more trusting? Does their innocence provide a really shocking counterpoint to the horror that they're experiencing? Or is it just because we've all been through childhood and so we can empathise more easily with their fears? I think it's a bit of all of those things, really, isn't it? I mean, there's something there is something particularly chilling about a naive narrator when the audience knows a tiny bit more than the than the narrator does. Like, you know, that's that's the construction of like what Maisie knew when with the shoes outside the bedroom door and the reader knows what it means, but the child doesn't. Also, it's yeah, it's a way it's a way it's a it's a it's a window it's a window into the into the horrible world which is got it's you know just slight slightly different everything's a bit to the left um you also as you say like you you sidestep the problem of like um whether they believe or not because children believe more easily so you have you have got a like a, a hard line direct access to this and uh, to the you know to uh, an instinctive understanding of you know the power of the imagination and horror and I just think children are creepy as well. Actually, in general, like children have this ability to be <laughs> extremely creepy. Like you just they don't mean to be, but they have their their innocence and their sort of even their just their size and their their high voices and their way of talking. It's very endearing. But like anything that exists on the end of a spectrum, you know, their adorableness is just so close to what we consider eerie <laughs> do you know what i mean that they they straddle that line really well so they perform they can perform like either function they can sort of need they can they can they can add to the creepiness or they can be the the, the innocent very innocent kind of soul that you have to root for it's also just children in danger is horrible it's just horrible so putting it by putting a chance in danger you, you automatically your states are like stakes are ratcheted up by about 500 and well, writer doesn't want that. We all want we all want the die on your sword stakes. Do you know what I mean? Fall on your sword. So, I think for a variety of reasons, they're they're very well suited to horror. And as you say, like what are the what's the most common experience in the world? Everyone's been a child, so it's something it's it's instantly instantly relatable, and you can you you can you can always find that part of yourself in there somewhere. Sometimes more near the surface than others, but you know, yeah, no, I. Yeah, I think it's a combination of lots of those things. 
Well, touching upon your point that kids are creepy, um, I think it comes back to the idea of misdirection again. You've got this absolute paragon of innocence, as you, depending on how you write it. I'm thinking perhaps gothic horror where, yeah. you know, you, you've got the little child in the little white nightshirt and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And then it turns out to be really creepy. And it's just because <laughs> you're so expecting it to be innocent when it suddenly turns around and bears its fangs at you. That That's quite scary. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. That, that, see that? Yeah, see that's 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 the sort of like fun moments, isn't it? There's a, actually. Do you remember the bit in um, the beginning, the very first episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, when um, and uh, they oh they the of, chosen one, yeah, well, the kids. Well, no, no. I was thinking of just it was just the cold open before it even got um, before it even started with um, started in on the main narrative. I think it was like the pre-credit sequence. But it's this this like teenage couple running through like an empty gym or whatever and then and, and like through the empty school playground or, and into a theater and you, and the guy is looking really horrible and predatory and he's you know kind of he's sort of be, he's being very sexually aggressive with the girl and she's she's kind of trying to get away from him and then she she says no and she's you know she starts running and then when he finally corners her and she's very docile and very like little and blonde and she suddenly whirls around she's got this fucking huge pair of fangs and she eats him <laughs> for breakfast oh, you know? that's right yeah yeah so it's just like it's an it's a it's a yeah that was a and it was a gen I mean, i'm a horror writer and that took that took me by surprise do you know what i mean if it's well done mm. then you really and i guess it's a good it's a, it's a good everybody likes a, everybody likes a little reversal you know it's fun it it makes a, it gives us a good jolt of adrenaline well, I mean, Buffy is the the perfect example of, you know, telling tropes and misdirection things. I remember um, reading about Joss Whedon going, well, why Buffy in particular? Is that, well, don't you get really annoyed in the horror films when the, the cute blonde lass just picks up, you know, the, the spoon instead of the range of knives next to her and ends up being... I know, killed? I know. Let's split up to cover more ground. Um, And, like, why do women always fall down so much in horror movies? They fall down... Or I, I run around a lot. I never fall down. Like, never. I, I can count on one hand the times that I've fallen down when I've run away. And if I was running away from a really scary thing, I very much doubt that I would fall down. I mean, and usually not just once, but twice. Do you know what I mean? In you know, running away from the very scary thing. Men don't fall down so much. Have you noticed? They must have different kind of legs, don't you think? Maybe it's the boobs. Maybe they overbalance. That's it. It's we're top heavy. We're weighed yeah. down. That's it. That's it. We're weighed down by boobs. <laughs> <laughs> it's very unfair. Could... <laughs> I know. If we're going to have one more moment about how cool Buffy is, we were talking about children, and I got a bit confused there where Katrina was talking about the opening sequence. There's a bit later on where there's a bus, bus crash, or um, all the all the vampires go into a bus, and there's one little kid survives that ends up to go on and be the master servant and all this kind of jazz, oh, and yeah. creepy kids. And then um, when he finally has his confrontation with Buffy, instead of all this, you know, like, oh, it's a child, it's so innocent, Buffy just goes, yeah, yeah I know who you are, and I know where we're going. Come on, let's go. <laughs> and it's like, again, just that brilliant idea of, of taking the original misdirection was that you had um, you had a, a cute, innocent child that turned out to be evil. Now we know that the cute, innocent child turned out to be evil, and the misdirection is that Buffy already knows and goes on with it. So Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah also just I, I love it when they just yeah you expect there to be a lot of like fumbling around and you know the main character also probably a woman just getting it wrong a lot or whatever it's like no it's no she knows she understands yeah good stuff now obviously talking about Buffy um, and we cycle back to the whole idea of women within horror 
Um, now, I've just read Little Eve, uh, and in that, the female characters are controlled by various means, but in particular by being denied an education and then steeped in a strongly patriarchal religion um, involving uncle who, mm. yeah, spoilers there. Uh, now, this is obviously something that has been prevalent throughout history. Um, but why did you choose to take this on as your theme, especially since Little Eve is set at the beginning of the 20th century, when one hopes that things would be a bit more enlightened? Well, I took, well, OK, so there's a combination of things here. I mean, I chose the First World War setting because it seemed um, that if you're going to abandon women and children as if on a distant star with no uh, no oversight or, or hope of, of, of being of, of some kindly intervention by, I don't know, so they say, you know, other people or the state or police or something, then the best way to do that is to give, you know, in, in a time of huge chaos when people just don't have don't have the time or the energy to do it. And it's also I also enjoyed the idea that it was so hermetically sealed that actually not even not even that incredibly far reaching and and devastating conflict could puncture you know the this 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 community in the way that it was affecting the rest of the world i think that i mean i i mean i i wish that the concerns that were described in the novel were no longer concerns or even had no were no longer concerns at the time of at, at the time it's set you know we we still have we still have you know, a lot of these issues are like alive and well um not too much of a spoiler i don't think to say like it's it's not um it's not uh, an unusual even now for an amoral leader to understand the power of separating families from their children you know it's <laughs> <laughs> it is it's um so no it's yeah. it's just very um topical right now <laughs> isn't it so <laughs> i mean i think I, I think I needed there to be something extremely and extremely overwhelming and chaotic and and, um, and and huge to be going on in the world outside it. But also, I think there's a it, I, it somehow it some it just wanted to be told. Then sometimes you know that's how it is. A story needs it wants to be in a certain time and it finds it, it finds its channel in that. Perhaps there's a certain symmetry being demanded in that there's so much suffering female suffering in this book at the hands of the patriarchy that perhaps there's just in the background there's also an added you know just an added hue of like an another kind of gendered suffering which is sending these huge huge millions and millions of boys to the war to die um so maybe that maybe there's a sort of correlation between the two and a parallel between the two ideas in that you know this is this is the kind this is how gen gendered suffering manifests itself um but also like yeah i mean i think that the strategies that are used to to de you know to depersonalize and to and to break them down are, are like many you know m many and various and i think lack of education yes you know the hunger the um you know the all the other things i can't talk about <laughs> um it's it, it's a it's a thorough it's a thorough attempt to completely reduce them to an abject status to abject status and it it doesn't it, you know it doesn't entirely work they still they still have um you know autonomy and personhood although although you know they 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 very much you know in his thrall it's I, you know it's it's also about 
they're fi- you know fi- finding that light in the darkness despite all of those things being heaped upon them as an aside i really like the the idea of the gendered suffering that as a balance to the kind of you know because we talk a lot about patriarchy and how women suffer yeah. under these patriarchal systems but to actually uh, look at it in a historical context that's really interesting because you know they were i did a first world war unit for english literature actually and it was yeah. it's quite alarming how um you know how it was so completely inexcusable for a man not to go to war yeah yeah and uh, yeah exactly and it, it's um i mean it's it's yeah whole, wholesale slaughter really and it's just, it was an ex, it's an extraordinary it's an extraordinary sort of thing to think about but um yeah so maybe that yeah maybe that is the count you know there's a there's a sort of there's a sort of link between those two ideas you know um, so let's talk a little bit about psychology and horror, because I think we've been kind of skirting around this anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the imagination can throw doubt on whether what we've seen is real or it's yes. just obviously just something that we've, um, you know, just imagined uh, in the, the heart of the kind of moment. Um, but, you know, neurosurgery and opiates feature quite heavily in raw blood. Um, yeah which is an aspect of the book that I thought was particularly intriguing and also a bit of a curveball because you adds just another layer of, you know, what is real. Right. Um, yeah. So basically, do you agree that like um, a character's mental state plays a significant role in a horror novel? Um, because obviously we've got the, the scenes with Iris uh, later yeah. on in, in the kind of asylum. So um, which were, again, very harrowing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, horror is isn't it it's about putting your characters through the worst possible things you can possibly um you can possibly imagine i think that i mean do you mean that like is 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 because because her because her mental state has been compromised so much that she become well she well that is it isn't it she she becomes an extremely unreliable narrator um and that that the unreliable narrator seems to kind of crop up a lot in horror Yes, because again we go back to this idea of certainty and uncertainty. Like certainty is very, certainty doesn't is not where horror lives. It lives in the uncertainty and this sort of hallucinatory, the sort of hallucinatory because da- horrors horror is quite camp actually in a lot of ways. It's got this very kind of like, and I mean you know camp in the sort of um, critical theory sense. It's got this over the top kind of uh, big, very dramatic. Uh, imagery coupled with these big feelings and it's quite it's 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 a height it's a heightened discourse and um one of the most frightening things that you can possibly imagine is to is to doubt your own mind isn't it so to to bring that sort of big overly vivid or or overly sinister or overly whatever it is um you know the, the nightmare fever dream images in and not to know whether they live it's almost as frightening. The two ideas are almost as frightening as each other. To not know whether they live outside you, where they can get you, or inside you. <laughs> that where they can also get you. Where they can also get you. <laughs> exactly. I mean, ter- both of these are equally terrifying. You get. I suppose you get. I suppose you get like a double. You get two for one with 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 the sort of um, s- s- slightly hallucinatory state narrator. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I thought the. It's very interesting that, that you've got the kind of you've got both in there that you've got the kind of the opiates which are self-administered, yeah. and then you've got Iris and obviously what she undergoes in in the asylum with this kind of as you were talking about before this kind of um, exploratory neurosurgery, but on a very mm. 
um, crude level. Yeah, I mean, it's. God, I mean, sometimes I just when you hear it read back, when you hear it said back to you, you just think, God, what a horrible book. No, um, it's a fantastic <laughs> book. It's a. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, narrowing, like, it's great. But it's yeah. Oh, but you know what I mean. It's just. I think you have. I think also. I. I did have to. I had to watch myself. Um, in terms of you can't go too far over the line. It can't be too hallucinatory because then you lose the reader's trust, don't you? If you don't have, even if it's just a very light organisation of what is real and it, it isn't, it can be kind of, it can be kind of in doubt and kind of blurred. But you, I think you, the the re, the writer, have to know and the, and gently guide the reader. I was thinking, what does it make me think of? I mean, you know, did you watch? Have you been watching Legion, um, which is the new? It's got Dan Stevens in it, and it's it's almost unbelievably. Mirror, Hall of Mirrors hallucinatory and it walks that line it's Noah Hawley who did weirdly it's nothing like it who did Fargo um, and it's all set in a an asylum and you are very very unclear at most points what's real and what's not but it all clicks together like a jigsaw puzzle to, you know as it goes on it's very cleverly done but it pushes that idea to the very limit and you have to be really careful about that because i mean i've, I've i'm sure we've all seen the things which you, you your mind can't exist for too long in that state of uncertainty it's uncertainty as to whether what you're seeing or, or reading is is real or not you have to at some point kind of have a little guidance you know yeah no i agree i, I think that's it. and it comes across in raw blood that you know there are times where you think you know i'm i'm now a bit lost you know like what is real and what isn't so you need to have that kind of concrete certainty yeah. fed to you by somebody so you yeah, can get yeah, a yeah. handle on the situation as a reader yeah exactly now katrina your books are both fascinating and clever and they challenge the reader to think and guess what's going on now with that in mind i wanted to know your opinion on the idea that there is a new genre of intelligent horror so a little while back there was a bit of an internet controversy although i suppose it might have just been limited to me and my horror friends but there was an article published by the guardian i believe it was basically going oh we have a new breed of intelligent horror and all these intelligent horror films like the babadook and things like that and all my horror friends basically came out and went uh no i think horror has always been intelligent i'm not quite sure what you're talking about here and I think when people think about horror, they tend to think about the slasher movies. Um, and I know that growing up, I was banned from watching the um, the video nasties, as they were called, you know, which is like Nightmare on Elm Street and Texas <laughs> yeah. Chainsaw Massacre. Right. And that's that's what a certain generation tend to think about horror. And certainly people who don't enjoy it as a, you know, as a general recreational thing. But I mean, what do you think? Do you think that horror has only just started to become more intellectually challenged? Or do you think it's always been this way and has suffered from kind of being classed as sensational? I mean, I don't see how anyone could think that horror hasn't always been intelligent. First of all, these genre words now tend to be sort of just used quite pejoratively sometimes as to describe as a group stuff that people just don't think is very good, you know, like horror, romance fantasy whatever by people who don't read anything like that that's that that's just it's it can be used as a kind of catch-all but i mean if you think that wuthering heights is horror which it is then intelligent horror has been around since then and well 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 before it you know one of my pay, favorite least favorite things my pet hate is um when you, you always read this in Know, reviews and go oh masterful writing absolutely wonderful he manages to transcend the genre how patronizing is that transcend the genre if it's, it's some some muddy pit you have to climb out of um and i love it 
the idea that it, in order to be good, it has to transcend the genre. All of this is nonsense. All of this is rubbish. I think that um, you there's strong associations created in people's minds, as you say, with the word horror, which do as we I think we, we circle back to the beginning of our discussion, really, which is, you know, what, what do people think a horror writer is? or What do you think horror is? And I think that there's such a huge bound it's a it's a it's a boundless huge broad church which encapsulates a whole bunch of things and it's again once again absolutely the mind boggles when you meet people who say oh i don't read horror and perfectly almost always the same people who are perfectly prepared to watch game of thrones and (laughs) (laughs) it's true like there's there's a sort there's a there's a ghettoization of genre which Maybe it just helps people to feel a bit superior to something. You can almost guarantee that whoever's, you know, whoever's talking about intelligent horror just doesn't really read much horror or even maybe doesn't even read that much in general. I don't know. Like, I, I don't I don't see how you could say. I mean, I'm, I'm all for intelligent horror as long as we acknowledge that a lot of horror is intelligent and it always has been. Do you know what I mean? We could just, yeah, maybe just drop the horror and call it intelligent. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I I missed this thankfully because it probably would have given me an aneurysm. Um, so <laughs> I won't I won't ask you to direct me to that Guardian article. But I mean, I think I, th- I think um, I think some of the you know some of the greatest writers in the literary canon have turned their hand to horror, and every time they do, everyone gets out uh, the, the fanfare and starts, uh, applauds them for having you know have so masterfully dipped into this um, into this you know rather low genre and elevated it. Which actually it's it's um, the tr- the truth is 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 far um, simpler and kinder, which is that great writing is great writing, and genre is. Just a very, very bad, not bad, but very inadequate shorthand that we use to describe um, things in a very broad sense. And it's not always descriptive. So I'll say again what I said at the beginning, you know, all, all good writing contains horror. And, hor- you know, horror, horror is when it's, when it's done well, horror, if it really is horror, then it's always going to be good writing because it's going to make you feel what the, in- the author intended you to feel. So, yeah, <laughs> that's what I think about that. <laughs> well, if I can quote the inestimable um, John Connolly again, when I was chatting to him, he was saying, well, horror is the only genre that is named after something you really don't want to feel. If right. you were rational and sensible, you wouldn't want to feel horror. And yet I think we do. And I think horror writing is very emotional and it's very imaginative. So you think about romance. I'm a you know, I'm also a big romance fan. I, I love reading where the boy gets the girl. You know, and they start off and they really hate each other. And oh, yeah, here's yeah. a castle and she's a lowly secretary. And they come together over great odds or whatever. Um, and that is that is emotional, but it's also formulaic. And it's also based on people and expected mm. reactions of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the history is obviously, you know, based. It's got a very solid structure. And you know that Henry VIII is going to decapitate this wife or, you know, kill this <laughs> yes, wife. You or definitely know the end in that case, don't you? <laughs> Yeah. But with horror, like you say, um, horror lives in the uncertainty and it requires you to imagine what the world might be like if this happened or that happened, you know, quite a bit like science fiction as well. Um, yeah. And I, I personally don't think that um, horror is only recently intelligent. And I think we need to go back to the lovely Melissa Edmondson McCullough, who was our guest a couple of months ago, mm. who was talking about female writers in sort of the, um, the 18th, 19th century mm. and how they were using horror to bring home things like um, war and female suffering and um, giving 
voices to minorities and to women who didn't have a voice at the time and people accepting it because it was horror and it was almost sliding this propaganda and these political views in under the radar of horror. Like, oh, my God, there's a ghost. The fact that it's a ghost in the British Empire in India and is reflecting the tensions between the Memsarbs is like secondary yes. to the ghost. So yeah. I think it's always been employed for uh, for those kind of purposes. But I do wonder if perhaps the audiences are changing. And now that, like you say, there are a lot of people who are enjoying things like Game of Thrones without sort of necessarily seeing the horror elements of it and are now coming around again, well, actually, I enjoyed that. And, you know, a lot of things are pitched as if you like Game of Thrones, you will like. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's seen as a quite a dead cert, isn't it, that comparison? <laughs> but um, I don't know. I mean, I suppose there are fashions and vogues for things. I do, you know, I, I think the publishing industry has, I mean, no no blame to it. Well, maybe a little blame to it, you know, has, has um, a vo- Vogues, very strong vogues for certain terms. Like in America, for instance, raw blood's not horror. It's not marketed as horror. No one says the word horror. They sheer, they shy away from the horror like a startled cult. But they, it's dark fantasy, which I like. I like dark fantasy. I think it's great. I think it's a great term. I, I don't think it excludes horror, but you know, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe there's a sort of, maybe there's a sort of softening towards the term because it's encompassing more things or fewer things i don't know i don't know i just it's it it seems to me that we spend so much we spend quite a lot of time talking about what horror is when i I wonder if we just we just instinctively know and it's it's not maybe it's not even i don't know maybe it's not even like it doesn't have to be confined to one single book maybe it's a vein of narrative that runs through that runs through a novel it's not the whole it's not the whole one maybe it's do you know what I mean? Maybe it's not self. Maybe it's not so contained as we as we make it. Maybe it's uh, you know these uh, ambient ideas that sort of settle settle on us. You know, and like, do you know what I mean? I want. I wonder if we're being too literal about it. I suppose also what one resents as well is that you go right. Here are all the things that are not literature: science fiction, fantasy, and horror. <laughs> and then here's literature on the other side, on all the other shelves. And you, you know, there is a kind of idea that these things, these, you know, that genre steps away from that, which we all know is not true. No, and I agree with your um, description of it running like a vein through through all yeah. books, because I think everything has. There is plenty of fantasy out there that is on borderline what you would call horror. Um, and yeah. certainly uses a lot of things like body horror from borrows these kind of so-called tropes or characteristics um, and uses yeah. them in, in the kind of more fantastical vein. So I do think we ought to be quite careful when it comes to these quite binary divisions between types of books. Yeah, yeah I think so. But I mean, I think I think, you know, whether or, whether or not one um, one approves of this sort of you know, these these categorizations, these walls that are thrown up between types of books, the people that one meets and the, you know, the communities that build themselves around, you know, the so-called genres are kind of fabulous. And um, I, 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 I've, I've never met nicer people than horror people or fantasy people or you know crime people there's a sort of maybe maybe it's the camaraderie of 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 the, of the ostracized but we you know there's such a sense of community and such a sense of support i think within within these these 
not necessarily fan- fandoms, but some, sometimes within within these um, within these communities that it, you, you find incredibly nurturing and really inspiring as well. So I don't know. I, I mean, I think that could exist while also dismantling the sort of hierarchy of literature. But you know, it's something to bear in mind, isn't it? That it, you know, it, it brings these labels bring good people together. So our conversation today has ranged from opiates to education, from creepy kids to book classification. What we can say for certain is that horror has crept out of its own genre and now infiltrates everything from fantasy to crime and romance. Katrina's books lead the reader on a merry dance and epitomise her statement that horror lives in the uncertainty. Katrina, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited now after our talk. I don't know how I'm going to get to sleep. (laughs) I, I think they go and read one of your books and that will guarantee that you have nightmares. <laughs> I'm sure she's read it quite enough. <laughs> Maybe that's exactly what I need to put me to sleep. Oh no, not this again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Katrina. It's been great to talk to you. You've been listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper. Please join us again next time.